This is Ken Lubin, the host and founder of the Executive Athletes Podcast, and welcome to this week's episode. I want to thank everyone that's been listening, and thank you for the comments and feedback. They're awesome and an incredible help in this journey to making this podcast better and better each episode. Once again, this is unscripted and unedited, as I believe it it is the best way to get to really know the guest. This episode's guest is Lex Gillette. Lex is the best totally blind, long, and triple jumper in the history of the U.S. Paralympic movement. He is the current world record holder in the long jump, a four-time Paralympic medalist, a three-time long jump world champion, and an 18-time national champion. He is the only totally blind athlete to ever eclipse a 22-foot barrier in the long jump. And if you think that any of this came easy, you should think again. But at the age of 19, Lex won his first Paralympic silver medal in the long jump. His achievements at the 2004 Paralympics in Athens were the culmination of years of hard work and training. Since that time, Lex has solidified himself as a tenacious competitor for Team USA. Lex now has a sight set on the 2020 Paralympic Games, which are now the 2021 Paralympic Games. And he is currently training and competing to make his fifth consecutive U.S. Paralympic team. There is one goal, and that is to win gold for the U.S. in Tokyo. As an athlete, motivational speaker, and singer-songwriter, Lex epitomizes the the phrase, no need for sight when you have a vision. So, Lex, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So it's, uh, I watched your video, you know, when you first reached out to me and that was unbelievable when you're, you're singing the song at the end of the TEDx video, but we'll we'll jump into that, but tell us a little bit about who Lex Gillette is, how you ended up becoming an athlete and going down this road. It all started in North Carolina, grew up there as a kid. In North Carolina, I was doing everything that your average eight-year-old child would do. Video games, bicycle, play outside with friends. When I was eight, I started experiencing sight loss randomly. No accident, no blunt force to the head or anything. And we went to the doctor. After an examination, the doctor said that I needed to have an emergency operation because I was suffering from retina detachment. And that led to a string of 10 operations that I had that year. The last one, doctor said that there was nothing else they could do to help my sight and also said that I would eventually become blind. So that was a tough time to say the least. Um, I think through that actual process, go through the operations and those, the first, second, third one, I think the optimism is is super high and you're believing that the doctors are going to be able to stabilize your sight. And at that time, I would have one operation, would be able to see for three or four weeks. And then after that, my sight would get blurry time a little more than the time before So those, the first, second, third operation, I was like, wow, all right, all right, you know, they're gonna make it happen and I'm gonna be able to see again. Then you move into the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh one. And now that optimism is, is fading and you're on the fence, like, all 
all right, I'm hoping that they're going to fix this, but not too sure if they will. And then you move into those last ones, eight, nine, 10. And I think that somewhere within me, I just began to subconsciously realize that, all right, this may be reality. So after that last operation, it was go home, go through your normal routine, go to sleep at night, wake up the next morning, see a little less than what you do the day before until one day you wake up and you're not able to, to make out much of anything. So uh, that, that, was, that was pretty, pretty tough. A lot of different emotions and feelings that, that run through your body. You feel isolated and, and disconnected from the world, but I have a really awesome mom and she found a, a ton of awesome people to help me shift my mindset and help me to figure out that, hey, you can still get out here in the world and do awesome things. You just may not be able to see those things. And because of them, uh, I've been able to find sport and I think more than that, just realize my potential and build my confidence, find out that I can go into the world and, and be independent and contribute to the world just like the next person. What, how old were you when you totally lost your sight? Uh, you know what, probably. If it wasn't the year that I was at, I was eight, I would say by the time I was nine, I really couldn't speak out much of anything. It was a slow, gradual movie, so. Right. Oh, I can only imagine. That must be scary, too, at being at that age. Yeah. Yeah, it is scary. It is scary for sure. I mean, you're, you're thrust into this, to this new world. And when did you discover sports? When did you discover track? How did, you know, how, how did that evolution happen? Prior to me losing my sight, I was very active kid. I played recreational baseball. I, I didn't swim competitively, but my mom had me a swimming lesson. I knew how to swim, swim and run and do the cannonballs and to the pool and all that stuff. And after I had lost my sight, it was a matter of transitioning from being able to see and not being, to not being able to see. Um, I eventually would gain that confidence to get back out there and start moving around and running around again. And my mom found different types of uh, adaptive sports and recreational programs that I could be involved in. But once I got into, I was on my track team in middle school as an eighth grader. I used to, I used to throw the shot, but so I'm like, I don't know, five, four, five, five, maybe 90 pounds. And out there throwing this, throwing this weighted ball. But uh, I think at that time, it was just more so camaraderie, being a part of the team, people accepting me. It felt good to be amongst a team. And once I got into high school, that is when things got a lot more serious. I wrestled for my first two years of high school, freshman and sophomore year. And the, uh, what, 112 pound weight class, 119. So still got my weight up a little bit. Right. And, uh, 
I found track and field after a physical fitness test that I participated in as a freshman. One of the activities was standing long jump. I was one of the best jumpers in my entire school. So all of the kids who they were, the majority of kids were sighted. I continued to go to public school. They saw how far I was jumping and they were like, wow, this is, this is pretty phenomenal. My teacher had told me about the Paralympics and potentially being able to travel the world and win medals and represent Team USA. So uh, I said, hey, I'm not going to turn that down. Let's, let's figure it out. But uh, when I was introduced to long jump, it was a challenge because in my mind, I was thinking not I would have to stand in one place and jump like I did in the physical fitness test, but in the games, you got to run and then jump. So the next piece was trying to figure out how to make that make that transition. That is, yeah. How did, so you went from standing long jump into doing, you know, the real long jump and, and you know, running into it and, and doing that. But I love the fact where your teacher said, talk to you about the Paralympic Games. How did that motivate you? How did you be like, I can do that? It was really motivating. We, we hear these you know, great pieces of advice and, and we have a lot of, well, you would hope that kids growing up have people who can inspire them, motivate them, and, and even outside of that, challenge them to reach certain heights and levels in life. So that's what Mr. Whitmer was for me. That was really exciting. And he was always the type of teacher who would push me and help me see that this is possible. You can do this. He was actually a teacher of the visually impaired. And so what that means is that since I was still in public school, he was the person that would make sure I had all of the accessible technology, all of the necessary accommodations so that I could still do what I needed to do in a in a, in a public school setting, classroom setting. So he would make sure I had my books in Braille, make sure I had someone who could transcribe the things that I would write in Braille, someone who could transcribe those things into print so that my teachers could grade my papers. And then he was also tasked with going to PE class with me so that I could have a, an inclusive environment. I could play alongside my my friends. And um, I think even before getting to the, the vision of the Paralympics, the environment that he set for me was, was one that you would step in and say, all right, well, I can do this. I have the resources to do this. So then when you add this vision of going to the Paralympic Games, now, now I'm thinking, oh, this is, this is like a, two, three, four, five steps uh, higher. Right. Wow. And how did you go from, now, did you go to college? How did you make the transition from high school athlete into Paralympics? Talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, I, um, let me see here. So I competed for my high school track team my junior and senior year. Mr. Whitmer was there also uh for those for those years and the, the really amazing thing is that he was actually planning on getting another job 
and uh, I think he wanted to be closer to his his family or his wife's family, and um, that would require him leaving North Carolina. So um, after my junior year, I think he might have gotten some opportunities to leave, but he stayed, and a lot of that. A large reason why he stayed was to make sure that I I graduated, and then also make sure that I had that assistance to be able to um, compete in track and field for my senior year. So uh, that was really cool um, and really special to have somebody who make that vision for me, and he helped me to to fin finish it out for the duration that I was in high school. But I did go to college, went to East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. And um, I want to say that year in 2003, I went to my first world championships. Mr. Whitman was there to help me compete. And after that competition, we kind of split in the sense of he moved to Georgia and I went to Greenville. So it was a, it was a nice resolve, if you will, to um, uh, you know, kind of finish out that particular chapter. But the awesome thing again is that in 2004, which was my first games, you know, I was getting into college, figuring that whole space out. But it was time to start working to qualify for the games. Mr. Whitmer would drive from Georgia up to North Carolina to help me compete during the spring of 2004. And I was able to, to get, a, get a nomination to the team, I want to say in May or June. So for wow. a moment. That is amazing. And what your first game was in Athens. That had to be yeah. that had to be unbelievable. And and going there and talk to us a bit about that experience. Yeah, it's insane. It's it's you know, I'm I'm here. I'm nineteen years old, first time traveling over the ocean, uh, being inside of this athlete's village with so many different athletes from around the world, having people who are just as competitive and, and, and as talented and as, as good as you are. You're seeing all of these athletes come together in this one space. That was really cool. And, and from the time that you walk into the stadium, it is a fantastic experience. I remember being inside of the stadium and having so many people in the stands. I, at that particular game, I had competed on the first night of track and field. It was an evening session. So you would expect that there would be a lot of people there. I, <laughs> I was out there in a lot of ways. Still, it was, it was surreal. But um, I was able to get on the track get do my thing and and put out a, a good enough performance to get on the podium and it was really special too because my mom was there my grandmother was there mr whitmer and his wife 
they were there also to have the people who help engineer a lot of your success to have them in the stands watching you and when your first medal that's a really cool moment because again they were a lot of they made up a lot of the uh you know people who helped to even get me to that point not not only from a from an athletic standpoint but just from a mental standpoint just kind of elevating the way i think and the way that i view the world and view myself no, and that had to be, yeah, exactly. Viewing the world and viewing yourself and, and actually going over there and ended up on the podium. That's, that's, an, that's awesome. Yeah. No, nah, it's, it's, a, it's, a it's a wild experience to have that medal placed around your neck and to be given your, your flowers. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a time that, that you never forget. Now, talk to us a bit about your journey. You're now you're looking forward and to your fifth Paralympics. It's and when we when I read the bio, it said 2020, but you know we made the change at 2021. Yeah. How talk to us a bit about that? Talk, to, but more importantly, is the mental piece, right? There's a mental piece that oh, I'm going to the Olympics this year, and then all of a sudden it's pushed off a year. Yeah, we were. I had just finished my fall training and fall training is really important because that's when you establish the, the foundation for being able to make it through the, the competition season. So we're doing a lot of running, a lot of volume in terms of lifting weights, strength and conditioning, really trying to build that base to have a great competition season. We were about to transition into more of the specific work, more of the technical work, which was in early to mid-March, everything starts to come down the pipeline in terms of the pandemic and you're hearing about the cases increasing. And unfortunately, people, people passing away from it. But at no point did I think that they were going to cancel or postpone the games. So I was just thinking, all right, well, give it three, four weeks, let it calm down, we get it control and everybody will be good but I want to say maybe it was the last week of March somewhere around there that's when the, the word came out that they were going to postpone the games until 2021 naturally years I was like oh man okay well right I mean it definitely was tough because you you build it up to the point where inside at least for me i was like i'm gonna be on this plane in the summer we're going to tokyo we're going to land i was scheduled to compete on the first night of track and field evening session so naturally you would just expect that a lot of people are going to be in the stands bright lights people are going to be watching you compete and first day you get to kick it off and then for that news to come out they say ah you're gonna have to wait another year. There's certainly, from a mental aspect, a a, a part of you that's like, mm, it's a downer a bit. But at the end of the day, you realize that it's a postponing and not a cancellation. So finding the silver lining in that is, all right, you have an additional 365 to work on some things that 
that you need to work on, get stronger in some areas where you need to get stronger. Maybe for athletes who might have been dealing with some injuries, they have they now have additional time to get get those things sorted out. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is always got to find a brighter side in these situations. So for me, I'm currently training. I'll continue to finish out the season as if it were a normal competition season, take my break in September, reset, get myself together for starting that fall training again in October. Now, is how is the competition season right now? Are you competing in the U.S.? Are you just in training mode? Talk to us a bit about that because I know so many different sports are all over the map. Right. No, no, no competition at the moment. We were talking about having some mock situations, but um, decided to to kind of forego that. But um, I take training pretty you know, pretty serious, so I'll make sure that I need to do what I do um, from that perspective, and you know, just, just count it done. Uh, I think that, yeah, I've been doing it for long enough to realize that uh, these things happen sometimes. You have to make changes. You have to make alterations at times. And this is just one of those moments where you have to really adjust and uh, take that time to, you know, sit out for a few weeks to get your break in. And then started up again in October. But the biggest thing is that the games would have been starting for us next week, I believe. Um, so that's the reason why it's important for me to continue training for the next two weeks. Because in two weeks, the games would end and then we would take our break anyway. So I'll train for the next two weeks and would take my break as as I would have. And, you know, maybe it's my ignorance here, but talk to us about, you know, training as a, bl as a blind athlete. That's going to be, it's not an easy thing that you, you know, you just go out and do and go for a run, <laughs> run yeah. through the city, right? So yeah. talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, that's a good question. I will say that a lot of the similarities come in the, in literally the, designing of the training program. So my coach is Jeremy Fisher. We train here in Chula Vista, California. And a lot of the things that I do in training are the same things that my, my training partners would do as well. So Coach Fisher, he has Olympians, Paralympians, Olympic hopefuls and Paralympic hopefuls in his training group. And we're all just one big one big group, one big family. Uh, so no separation in terms of Olympian and Paralympian, which is, which is really cool. I think a lot of us from the athlete perspective, we gain a lot from each other. And, uh, and it's nice to know that coach Fisher just for, for me as a Paralympian and the other Paralympians, it's just like, man, there's no difference in what you're doing here and, and work just like the next person. So, um, that's where a lot of the uh, 
that's where a lot of the similarities lie. However, specifically, yeah, there is there's some differences. I, I am the reality is I can't see anything, so I do have a guide who helps me train and compete. My guy's name is Wesley Williams. When I'm competing in the long jump, he stands at the takeoff board and he's clapping and yelling, fly, 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 fly. Okay. Yeah, that was my next question, how yeah. that works, but you, you, yeah. you, you nailed it. Yeah, so he's giving me that audible reference. I know which direction to run. And any jumper, whether you're sighted or not, you know how many steps that it takes for you to get from point A to point B. And for me, I usually, my approach is, is around like 115 feet or so. And that takes me 16 strides to cover that distance. Um, that's how it works in the long jump. And when we're running, Wesley is right beside me. So if we're inside of, um, let's say if we're running 100 meters, there are two sets of blocks that are on the ground. We both get into our blocks. I would have a tether on my hand. So I'll wrap this, this string around my, like two of my fingers. And then he would wrap that same, another loop of that string around two of his fingers. And when the starter says on your marks, we both rise and press our feet against the blocks. Um, they say set, oh, I'm sorry, they say set, and then we rise, push our feet against the blocks, and then once they say go, then we we get out of the blocks together, run the race together, and if you were to look at it from the side, it's mirrored, so we would probably almost look like one person running, but that's the beauty of the sport and the beauty of being able to build that rapport relationship with your guide so that you can have a fluid race. Um, but yeah, my guide, he's, he's really an integral part of this whole equation because he's, when I'm running hills, he's right beside me running hills. When I am doing the 200 meter repeats, he he's right there beside me running the 200 meter repeats. And all this time he's giving me verbal cues and communication to let me know where I am in space. Wow. That's, that's going to be amazing. And then being in, like you were saying, in lockstep with each other is a, uh, you sort of two is one and talk about being teammates and team members. It's that's second to none. Right. Right. Yeah. It's just, you hear a lot of people, I mean, think about it from other sports like quarterback and, and wide receiver, they build this relationship to the point where center hikes the ball, quarterback has a clock that's that's going in his head, and the, and the wide receiver does as well. Wide receiver turns at the perfect time, and the football is right there in his face. Bow, he plucks it out of the air, and he's gone. It's the same thing with with us as as blind and visually impaired athletes. You build that relationship with your guide to the point where. In a lot of ways, yeah, they give us verbal cues and communication, but um, you you begin to build this this type of deeper connection to the point where you you guys know each other, and, and you're able to initiate the jump or the run a lot of times, and and and, and words may not be uh, may not be said. 
Now, do you have the same guide for each event that you do? Talk to us a bit about that. I do. I do have the same guide. It's not a, it's not a rule when it comes to, if you use whatever guide that you use in the, in the running events, I think that you have to use that same guide in the other events that you may compete in um, on the track. But if you go to the field, you can have a different guide. Um, So yeah, if you were to run the hundred and 200, then you would, you would need the same guide for both of those races. But if you did the long jump as well, once you switched over to that side, the field, you would be able to have a different guide. I'm pretty sure that's how that works. Somebody might listen to this and fact check me, but, uh, (laughs) but yeah, it's all fake news. Anyways, if you're wrong, it's fake news. (laughs) Oh, awesome. No, that's pretty cool. You know, it's like, it's something I know, you know, I don't know a lot of, actually, I've had a couple of blind people on the podcast, Amy Dixon. I don't know if you're familiar with Amy. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I know Amy. And then someone else, I can't remember who wrote a book about it, but um, ultra runner blind, but it's, and everyone's got their own stories, right? Of how yeah. they deal with it. And it's, and it's really just, and I love the overcoming adversity and the fact that you never gave up and that you just got to keep forging ahead. So what you're doing is awesome. I, I appreciate it. I mean, it's, you, you had the nail on the head. A lot of it is, yeah, it's certainly a lot of adversity. And then you just you think about challenges and that's, that's like the inevitable aspect of life one of them at least like we're always going to face some sort of challenge some sort of obstacle um but our ability to to overcome those things to make plans and figure out the the best strategies to overcome those things that's really the the name of the game so my challenges are are probably in a lot of ways different from yours and other people but um it doesn't change the the type of emotions that we get from those things, the feelings that we, that we experience. That's what really connects us all, even though our actual obstacles are, are different. Um, And who knows? I mean, there are a lot of us who experience the same obstacles, which is, that's another awesome thing because you're able to sit there and talk about it and, and compare and contrast and, and be amongst a community of people who understand where you're coming from. And, uh, you know, that's, that's awesome because that, that helps us to see that, Hey, this is possible. I can get over this and be, you know, there's, there's some people who, um, and they've been in the same boat as I am. So, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's just the, the beauty of life at the end of the day. No. And, you know, and like I said, overcoming, you know, what you're doing is just, so inspiring you're one of the you know most inspiring guys i've spoken with about this stuff but you know the craziest thing or talk about stepping out of your comfort zone more scary than being at the olympics is is singing on a uh on a tedx stage talk to about talk to us about that yeah that was the 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 tedx stage it was it was fun it was something new and different and I had been messing around with music as a kid. I had a keyboard that I had gotten from for Christmas when I was really young. And I had kind of stepped away from that once I really started going through the sight loss process. 
and then I picked it up again once I had gotten into into college. But I was seeing and growing up, I used to basically when I would come home from school, I would blast the music and sing and, and you know pretend like I was putting on shows, like I was the person performing at the concert. And uh, over the years, I've just done it more. I've sang at sporting events and recorded songs. And once I had gotten to the TEDx stage, I knew that I wanted to incorporate some sort of music and how the the speech was written and, and uh, you know that whole process. I said we're going to end with with some music, so we decided to sing Blackbird at the end, and it was the perfect ending to a speech where you know, we're talking about flying and taking about talking about taking a shot in the dark, and um, it was like perfect perfect way to wrap that present up with the bow. No, and that's great. That's great. And what I'll do is I'll make sure I share that with everyone as well. When when I send this out, we publish it because it is truly a inspirational thing that you did there. So, hey, we're and we're coming up here, Lex, on over half an hour. We could probably go for you know another hour, hour, <laughs> hour and a half, two hours. But where can people find more about you? Where can they find out more about your journey to twenty twenty one? We'd love to get it out there for you. Oh, yeah, I appreciate it. We love that support. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Lex Gillette, L-E-X-G-I-L-L-E-T-T-E, like the razor. And my website is LexGillette.com as well. So I'm pretty I'm pretty responsive on, on social. And so we'd love to hear from, from everyone for sure. Awesome. And Lex, you, like I said, you're an inspiration. Keep up the good work. And to anyone who's listening, who has any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to me at kenandtheexecutiveathletes.com. Hopefully you're out there still crushing it every day. Be inspired, be inspired, be inspiring and do it all at once, just like Lex. So thanks for listening. Really appreciate it.